Welcome to Crazy Enough to Win. I'm your host, John Grubbs. Welcome to the show. Listeners, I have something special for you today. I have Miss Heather Lutzi of findability.com. She helps people find you in the sea of seven billion humans on this planet. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John. Well, I am excited to have you on today because I think one of the most significant challenges facing not only us as individuals, but businesses is this concept called obscurity. And when people can't find us, it seems like no matter how valuable we are, we're stuck. We're stuck in this world of, well, people just not knowing how to connect with us. So this podcast is for crazy people. Crazy people get things done. Yes, we do. What is the craziest thing you have done personally or professionally? <laughs> well, I have one for both if you want both. I'll take them. Okay, so the, the craziest thing I ever did personally was pole dance on Oprah. Oh my gosh. And the thing that I done most interestingly enough with, with my business is I toured um, main stage with Tony Robbins for a year. Holy cow. The Tony mm-hmm. Robbins. The Tony Robbins. So did you learn anything from him? I learned a lot from him. I saw some things that I didn't, I'd rather not see, quite frankly. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I kind of immersed myself in, in his world for a year. And it was a very educational learning opportunity of what not to do. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Tony. Yeah, Tony's got a reputation. He's got a great reputation, but I hear he's got another reputation too. So uh, well, he's just he's got he's got to get things done. Like I got two weeks notice before I went to Fiji for an interview. So you know it's crazy. (laughs) Well, that's good. So you fit in real well with our crowd. You've got a little craziness in you. Oh, good, good. (laughs) So here's an interesting question, and I love to start a podcast with this because I think it gives the listeners insight into the real human. If you can give advice to your 25-year-old self, what would it be? Oh, my goodness gracious. Wow. That is, um, I think I would say to not be so hard on yourself, um, to maybe take longer to trust, (laughs) you know, take a little more time to evaluate before you jump, jump in. Um, and probably I tell her that it's all going to be okay. It's a great journey. It's a great ride, but it all ends up working out in the end. Wow. So be nicer to yourself is probably what my takeaway would be. Wow. I just did a blog article that will eventually become a podcast and mm-hmm. it's the title of it is I stopped giving a crap. Mm, yeah. I think you got to hit 50 to start saying that honestly. Really? Yeah. I mean, in your twenties, you got something to prove in your thirties, you want to create a legacy. Right. And then you hit your forties and you're just trying to, you know, stay relevant. And then I hit my 50 and I'm like, I just don't give a crap. <laughs> well, and, and the th- what I want, when I want with who I want. <laughs> and the thesis of this is you, you only have so many give a craps in you. You can't spend them on things that are insignificant. Spend them. You're on so right. Things. You're so right. So my spirit animal is the sheepdog. I am a protector, sometimes to a fault. What is your spirit animal? <laughs> These are the best questions ever. Um, my spirit animal is a fox. Ah. They're, they're, they're cute. 
but they're also they're also got an edge to them and they're fast and they're pretty so that's my spirit animal's always been the fox so you you have a little edge to you that i don't know about you know i'm just very snappy you know i'm very like let's do it let's get to it let's i'm going to show you how and i'm just i have a lot of energy and i just like to cut to the chase uh and sometimes people like that and sometimes yeah i totally get that that's okay. I'm good with that. You know, I'm not for everyone. I get it. <laughs> I totally get that. And you know, that, very... that, that need to please, I think goes away as we get older too, that, uh, oh, you yeah. know, take me as I am, if we're not a good fit. And, and from a business standpoint, I really think that's helped me sell my services to companies by telling mm -hmm. them up front, we may not be a good fit for each other. Right. Right. I say always get to know fast, right? You... It's kind of like higher, slow, fire, fast. Yeah. I always think is the quicker you get to know, then the next person is going to get to, going to get to yes. Well, and I think in this for me, it's like let's make sure, you know. Go ahead. We've got a little bit of a delay in here, so we'll just work okay. through that. If we hit a no, pause, no, I'll I'll just talk people through it. But uh, keep keep going. Sure. Um, so you may not know this about me, but I was diagnosed with melanoma skin cancer in 2016 and it changed my life for the better. Hmm. I stopped giving a crap about so many things that don't matter. What's a major pain point in your life and how did it change? You? Hmm. Interesting. Um, oh my gosh. I think that I found out maybe this is oversharing. But I found out right before I went to high school that the father who I thought was my father was not my father. Okay. And it was someone my mom had met along the way. <laughs> wow. So my entire foundation was pulled out from underneath me. And then I had to start reevaluating who I really was outside of whatever father I had. Oh. So for me, it was about understanding that I didn't need, I didn't need um, to be accepted by a father figure in order to validate my existence. So for me at that point, I'm like, bitches game on. <laughs> you don't think I think I'm an accident. I will prove you wrong. Oh. So my whole life has sort of been a game on sort of mentality. Like just because, I mean, that could take a lot of people down for a very long time finding that out. Mm. But for me, it was like, cool, you know, let's do this. I didn't, you know, yeah, I had a couple thousand dollars in therapy at the same time, but <laughs> you know, I think for me coming into my fifties now, it's like, I don't need that anymore. Like I've let that go, that need for approval and for acknowledgement and that I was never a mistake based on that information. And that took me decades to get over that. Well, I think sometimes those really challenging moments can become fuel for us. They can become a, a point yeah. in our life where we, we don't need to seek affirmation from other people. We, right. we, we, we create our own merit in our own mind which I think some people never discover, Heather. So, I mean, I for you to be comfortable in your own skin and in your own mind at any point in our life, I think is, is valuable. Yeah. Um, so do you stay in contact with both of them? Well, they're both passed away now, but okay. yes, I did. My, um, my biological father and my, and my, what I thought was my father, they both passed away in the same year. Okay. So, was that a long time ago? Um, it was about six years ago. Okay. Cause I lost yeah. my parents in 07 and 11. So I know, I know how that. So my mother's still kicking and I'm actually interviewing her about what she experienced. And then I found out that my stepbrother contacted me through LinkedIn. Oh, wow. LinkedIn and said, Hey, 
not really a stepbrother, but my half brother. And he's like, I don't know. We know about you. I don't know if you want to know about us, but we thought we'd connect. Wow. Did <laughs> you we, connect? We did. Yeah. I've been out there, but his family. Yeah. We've become very close. He's very, you know, he's, he, he and I were able to knit all the stories my mom told me with all the stories his dad told me, and they were able to knit them together to make sense of what had happened. And it's been really cathartic to do that. How cool is that? So did yeah. it end up being a positive thing where you had two really cool guys that were in your life as, as, as father figures, or was it more complicated than that? It was complicated. I mean, my, my, what I thought was my father, he was very fun. He was very party guy, but he was not a great father, but he was great to party with and have fun with. And then my other, my other father just was too busy with his own life to. Yeah. We talked a couple times and I did it a couple times, but it was complicated. (laughs) That's what they're going to put on my gravestone, John. It's complicated. There you go. It's complicated. (laughs) Well, yeah. I don't think there's a family that if they were honest, wouldn't admit that it's complicated no matter what. Right. Well, the fact that I can just say it to a perfect, you know, stranger on a podcast probably (laughs) signifies something about where I'm at with it. (laughs) Well, we've broken bread and had one meeting together. So I hope we're not strangers. That's true. (laughs) We just may be distant colleagues. How about that? That's right. That's right. So let me ask you a really hard, I've asked you an easy question. Let me ask you a hard question. So this pandemic has become political and polarized. Mm. What is your take on the reaction to COVID-19? Interesting. Yeah. um, Some of the things I'm actually really excited about that I've seen come out of COVID-19. I've seen a level of ingenuity and entrepreneurship that would never have come about if it hadn't been for, for the pandemic. Just, you know, like people showing up at, at a drive-through to listen to a concert, you mm. know, and, and people doing random acts of kindness just because they really feel strongly about doing that. Um, so that's like the, I think the best part of this is we've all been able to support at a more, um, I think, a more cellular leather, really, as opposed to just saying, oh, I gave money yep. to that organization. Now people are really stepping up and actually doing something about it. So that's in a way super positive. The other side is how polarizing it has been, even from wearing a mask. Yeah. So my son works at a garden center and the garden center requires people to wear masks mm-hmm. and they come in and they take the manager toe to toe. They take my son toe to toe or before they walk in, they'll put the mask on and then they'll go around the corner and take it off. So it's just, and now the, the, the people at that business are responsible for policing other people's bad behavior. Yeah. And this is what really upsets me is that people are so thinking about their self that they're not thinking about others yeah. and that it becomes all about, becomes about, I don't have to wear a damn mask. You don't have to make me wear a mask, you know? And I'm just like, you know, do you care about your fellow man? Yeah. You know, like, why wouldn't you wear a mask? Is it that big of an inconvenience? Yeah. And then my son also said he sees people take their mask off when they sneeze. Oh, wow. So it's kind of, you know, so I think that's the other side is that you really see a polarization and people's attitudes right now. And that makes, that's really hard for me to, to get my, my, my head around. Yeah. It, I did a podcast and a blog article about people feeling muzzled at work when diversity of thought is no longer encouraged. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you, you know, more people than less feel like they can't talk about their, not only their political views, but their, their, their general values 
at work and they feel like they have to hide those. Oh yeah, that's a no, no. Mm -hmm. So I was on a, on a call with a, with a CEO just before you and I was telling him, I said, you know, I think there's value in higher level communication skills where an organization can have a deep and deliberate talk about politics, about religion, about their personal values. Because I think if, if people are muzzled in one conversation, that's automatically gonna make them feel muzzled in other conversations. And the organizations that can get to that higher level, deeper conversation and disagree and still support each other or disagree and commit to each other, or even better, disagree and love one another are the organizations that are going to have the highest level of not only trust, but communication with each other. Does that make sense with you? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem is, is with all the Me Too movement and sexual harassment and you know, diversity in the workplace and discrimination in the workplace, there's so many things now in a company that you really can't just roll in and talk about your religion or your political views for the backlash that you might receive. And I think that that has stopped that communication because the workplace has become so rigid around mm -hmm. what you can do and what you can't do. And that one person makes an accusation and it's, it's true, yeah. but there's no, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I'm all about, you know, having a, a diverse, safe work environment. However, when it becomes toxic mm. and it becomes so nerve wracking to be able to say something that you really feel because you're worried about the back, the impact of that might have on your job. Yeah. I think that's where communication breaks down. Yeah. And you just shut up and do your work and you go home and then you bitch and moan to your husband or your yeah. wife, you know, but I don't think I'm a self-employed. I've been self-employed since I was early thirties and I left corporate America because I hated the gossip quality, the clicky quality, just everything about corporate America just rubbed me the wrong way. Mm. And so I, I really have, I've separated myself. I started my own agency and then I saw it in my own agency. So I'm like, okay. Um, but I think that. Yeah. To I have agree. open communication when there's so much risk involved. Yeah. But yeah. The, the whole point of the article was that if, if people feel muzzled about one topic, that's going to transcend other topics as well. And people will just shut up and do their job. And there's no, mm -hmm. there's no trust in that environment. I mean, I'm speaking to a group of people on Monday about trust as a team. Mm -hmm. And I don't think trust can be compartmentalized. I trust you about mm -hmm. this, but I don't trust you about that. Right. So, yeah, and it can really, it can break down the collaboration. It mm -hmm. can break down the communication amongst the staff. I mean, you know, people get rid of cubicles for a reason because they mm -hmm. want everyone. I agree. And certainly with all this is that the cubicles are going back up. <laughs> And it's going to be even worse than it was before, right? Um, yeah, so it's a scary time, too. To even be in an office is scary right now, let alone communication. So what do you think of the, the, the thesis? I said that CEOs need to create those conversations before the election and even more importantly, after the election, so that people feel safe having those difficult conversations. At work? At work. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> You know, that's tough. I don't know. I mean, as someone who's run my own business for years and sold a couple businesses. Yeah, I agree. I would really need to like you to be able to help me with that because I would feel like that just shut, just shut that door because you're opening yourself up for so many problems. Um, and, and of course the, the, the bipartisan, you know, nature of our political 
um, you know, world right now is so divided. I mean, there are some friends that voted for the president that we currently have that I had absolutely no idea because they never told me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like instantly I'm like, who are you? Mm. Like it just completely changed like in a nanosecond. Like, so I think I've never really had in prior elections. I didn't really care. You vote for Obama. You vote for. for Yeah. But somehow the climate has changed to such a level that if you didn't vote for the one I want, then you're just persona non grata. I'm not interested in even yeah. talking to you anymore. I mean, I've heard stories about friends breaking up, families breaking up. They're not talking to each any, anymore. You know, it's really a volatile political scene right now that we're all trying to get through. And it's a controversial topic. I mean, I made it controversial yeah. on, t- on purpose because what I think yeah. is the opposite of that is equally as bad. That if I, if I don't feel safe telling you what I really believe and, and mm-hmm. who, I, who I support, we've got deeper problems. Yeah. We can't really talk right. about other things that may be important because everything is compartmentalized and that high performing teams are going to work right. through the difficulty and still have those difficult conversations. It's not easy though. Right. No. And it's, it's not easy for anybody. And added on top of that, the political environment and the COVID and yeah. the rioting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really scary time for everyone in the United States right now. And regardless of how it turns out, 50% of, people are going to be upset. Yep. Regardless. Yep. So it doesn't Regardless. go away. It does not go away with the election. That's why I'm telling these CEOs, you've got right. to have these conversations proactively and create a space and also be the one that models the behavior of understanding people with different points of view and supporting sure. people sure. with different points of view with the boss. And don't surround them by. Yeah. I was at a bar not too long ago. Surprise. And um, I was sitting next to a friend of mine who I've known for a very long time. And she decides during her conversation to let me know that she was a Trump fan. Yeah. And I'm like, I was just shocked. I almost fell off my chair. And then she's telling me all these great things about, obviously I'm not a Trump fan. So I apologize to anyone listening. That is, but then like two people on the other side of the bar were like, hell yes. And now all of a sudden I felt surrounded. Yeah. Jeremy, I felt attacked Mm. because I didn't have the same views that they did. So yeah. there's almost like they're sleepers, right? They're, they're voting in a way that they know make other people upset until they get around each other. And then all of a sudden they're like yeah. high-fiving each other. And I literally had to get up and walk out yeah. because yeah. so um, surrounded by, by feelings I did not agree with at all. So that was, that's been a very different, that's a very different thing that I've had to experience with this last four years than I ever had yeah. as a voting citizen. So yeah. So, so what about the detriment that comes from feeling that way every day at work when you're maybe you're the minority at work and you feel right. that way and you hear all your other colleagues speaking and you feel the same way you felt when you had to walk out. What if that's the way people feel every day at work? I know. That's, scary. The, point of, that's the point of the conversation in that article. And uh, it's, right. it's necessary. It's, it's one of those things that's painful. It's difficult, but it's necessary. And my whole point is, with higher level communication skills, with some facilitation skills, you can have that difficult conversation rather than avoiding it, which is fear-based in my well, opinion. I just, yeah, I and mean, I just didn't want to have to like, you know, take out my checklist and start going through all the things that made me not vote for him versus they had their checklist and they're popping it out and they have all the reasons why they did. Yeah. And it, I think in a lot of ways as a leader in your organization, you've, like you said, you've got to figure out ways that both sides can be heard, 
mm. but yet still validate their their thinking in that respect yeah. without shaming them, without getting angry at them, without saying, oh, really, you're that fan or you're yeah. that fan. And then you have to, as a leader, be able to prepare for the outcome that that might bring in. Yeah. So I guess my question to you. I agree. I, as a leader, would I incite such a polarizing topic in my work environment? Well, I, I think it's because the opposite of not doing that, well, the, the opposite of doing that is not doing that. And that means that people are going to feel the way you felt in that bar every mm. day they come to work, especially if they're in the minority. And, you know, I think right. that the skill building is around having a conversation that supports two points of view, yet still supports the organization embracing your values, even mm -hmm. if we don't agree with them. Uh, I'll give you an example. My uh, niece from California was visiting over the last week, and she's a senior in high school. And um, I will tell you, the, the political ideology in California is 180 degrees out of phase with the way it is in Texas. And, oh, yes. I've and, been to both places. I understand. So, so she, when she and I were having a conversation, I, I said, I said, baby, you got to remember that not everybody agrees with what you think. I said, if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves in what I call a political echo chamber where we surround ourselves with people that only agree with us. And part of the article talked about what happened to honor among gentlemen and women. When I, you know, when I was in high school, I actually got to go watch the, the state capitol and these guys would debate with each other vigorously and then go have lunch together. How do we right. get back to that when we can debate yeah. and still love one another? Right. And that's the healing that has to go on. And I think, I think strong leaders are going to, they're going to, they're going to embrace it no matter how difficult it is rather than avoid it because that right. avoidance creates separation, emotional separation, intellectual mm -hmm. separation, the collaboration that you're talking about. I mean, you couldn't yeah. sit there at the bar. You had to leave. I believe, yeah. Yeah. So it's emotional. And I thought that would have been a safe place to have a colorful conversation, <laughs> right? I thought that like we'll all have a cup of glass of wine and we're all, you know, a little more open maybe to conversation. I thought that would be a safe place, but it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you something a little fun. What's what's pissed you off lately? What's pissed me off? I'm pissed off because going out to eat and going out to shop has become zero fun. Mm. And so I go to work. That's why I have a co-working space. I say, uh, I go to work, I go home. I go to work, I go home. Except for maybe going grocery shopping at my own peril. You know, I'm pissed because I can't go out and just enjoy life. Really? Well, do you know it's pretty, pretty much I back normally think of doing. I'm not It's pretty much back to normal here in Texas. You know, we, uh, we go out to eat. The, the restaurants are about half full. There's, there's tables separated. Um, we wear masks when we go in, or most people wear masks, not everyone, but we, people wear masks when they go in, or at least have a mask in case someone wants them to use it. The staff wear masks, but um, shopping is pretty much normal. Um, we still don't have our movie cinemas open yet, but isn't that strange too, how some parts of the country, even though people that aren't from Texas, that oh my gosh, Texas, you guys have so many cases. How, how are yeah. you guys doing that? I said, well, you got to understand, Texas is about the size of four or five states. So Huge, not yeah. all parts of Texas are equal with this virus, but, but yeah, I have, I have fans and people that talk about how, man, you guys get to go out to eat and go bowling. And my son's playing football. He started football practice on Monday. See, they canceled all football here in Colorado. They canceled all extracurricular sports to the spring. 
Wow. Wow. Yep. Crazy. Yep. Schools are not going back. Wow. It's, uh, yeah. It's, so it's, um, I guess maybe depending on what state you live in, but I feel this undercurrent when I'm going somewhere of this kind of hushed concern. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel it in the air Yeah. and it's something that everyone's like, it's, it's still not normal by any means. It's still this, this unfathomable concern that hovers over every place that I go in public mm. and I can, maybe I'm just more intuitive, but I feel that. And it, it is kind of, um, it's kind of, um, soul crushing because everything I used to enjoy everything I, cause I'm very extroverted. So I love to be around people and I love to travel. I haven't traveled since March. Oh, no. My first traveling is in two weeks. Wow. And so I, I guess I feel that undercurrent, John, yeah. And that's what I'm picking up on. It's not so much that everyone's not trying to look normal. We all are, but I can feel that level of concern and worry in every public space that I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that feeling is here too. I think it's a little more latent than it is, mm. uh, you know, in front of us, but uh, it's, it's yeah. still here too. Um, I was, I was thinking about travel as well. I haven't been on a plane since, early March, I think early March. And all of my mm -hmm. speaking gigs have canceled, except for one, I've got one scheduled in Atlanta that's going to be virtual. And they're, they're doing some sort of weird thing with a TV crew or something. I oh, don't right. how that's going to go. But sure. um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. So I strongly believe in a high failure rate in business. And you talked about failure earlier. I think failures mm -hmm. are incremental steps to learning and discovery. What is your advice mm. for listeners about failure? Mm, fail, fail fast, you know, fail fast. Cause the faster you fail, the quicker you can correct your behavior and get to. The yeah. Yep. So I know always like in one breath, I might like have six meetings with someone and they say, you know what? We've gone with another vendor. And I say, okay, good luck. I'm here when you're ready. As opposed to what? You didn't like me. You didn't, I was smart. You didn't like, didn't you Google me? I'm like super, super popular and impressive. And, you know, I think that failure has nothing to do with others' opinions of you. Yeah. It's always what's going on for them. And I'm constantly telling myself that about failure or about someone doesn't return a phone call fast enough, or I didn't get invited to a party somewhere that feels like a failure to me. Mm. But oftentimes it has nothing, almost always, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with what was happening with them. Yeah. Um, so for me, I agree. Comes in a lot of different shapes and forms um, from someone not calling you back to someone taking too much time to respond to an email. All those things could be little tiny failures if you let it become personal. Um, yeah. And so I think that giving yourself some grace and some room to let that happen without judging it as a failure. And maybe there's less failures in our life and actually more positives, but we're making more failures in our own mind. And I think that's something that if we took a look and say, you know, just cause they didn't call me back within five seconds. So they didn't return my email within two seconds or they didn't respond to my text message. You know, all of this failure. I agree. Out builds and builds and builds. And so for me, it's, it's really, I've had a lot of failure in my, in my life and a lot of success and I wouldn't take any of it back, you know? So you, you're, you're a business owner like I am. Um, one of the things that I believe in is prescripting a failure rate percentage for your team. In other mm -hmm. words, tell your team, I want to give you enough autonomy that you fail 
in your decisions and in your points of view and your actions, you automatically get a 10% failure rate built in. What do you think that does for people's willingness to take risks or make decisions independent of you as a leader? Yeah, um, I think that there's so many assessments now, right? There's the DISC and the wealth dynamics, and there's all these different DISCs. And I think what I've learned from all of those personality tests is that there are really different kinds of personalities. And you cannot, you cannot assign what you want to others. Mm. So understanding that diversity, um, like I was just talking to a gal yesterday, and we were going to go out and have some drinks or something. She's like, I could never go out on the same day that someone invited me. And I was like, I'd be like all over. I'm like, yes, give me 10 minutes. I'm there. Right. Yeah. But she's like, no, I need a day to sort of prepare mentally before I do that. And then I was like, of course, everyone has their own sense of how they want to engage and just being, being mindful of that diversity, that what you are feeling. Yeah. I agree. Anyone else so I think, yeah. So I think, a lot of those assessments are just trying to figure out human behavior. Um, and um, I think it's important to, you know, your own behavior, but are you really paying attention to what others need from that same interaction? Very cool. Very cool. So are you a gadget person? Oh yes. I got gadgets galore. So what's the coolest gadget you have that's around a hundred bucks? A hundred dollars. Uh, my nails. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, everything I have is over a hundred bucks. Okay. Let's be honest. I mean, I'm a. Uh, that's crazy. I'm a techie person, right? So I, I love tech. Well, tell me. Oh, your actually, favorite, I have some earbuds. Favorite tech device, then. So I got, I got. These are under a hundred dollars. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I can lose them and not cry. Okay. Well, I don't want you to cry on my podcast, but that's okay. So what is the what is the coolest gadget that you bought or that you have? That mm. just comes to mind. Can so be I'm, gonna, I'm gonna date myself, but I had a Newton. What? A Newton. I've heard of the do you Newton. Remember, do you remember Newtons? I've heard had of a Palm Pilot. Did you have a Palm Pilot? I did have a Palm Pilot. Okay. Yeah, I've had them all. Uh-huh. <laughs> so my husband and I grabbed all of our tech and got created the history of technology. We had a brick phone, we had a Newton, we had Palm Pilots, Blackberries, flip phones, and then of course then the iPhones. So if you ask me to pick my favorite, man, I which game would you pick? the entire time. The Newton was your favorite? Um, um, which was my favorite? Well, it was at the time. It was my favorite thing at the time because no uh, one else had that. So I was I the cool you. kid in the room because no one had that. Yeah. So I always want the thing that makes me look smarter, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the younger listeners will get a kick out of this. My favorite thing about the Palm Pilot was the ability to bump your Palm Pilot with your Friend. Oh, the bump. I love those. And I would, my phone had that. My iPhone had that. You, really? The iPhone did where you could yeah, bump it and, all, and it would share contact. There's an, information? App, there's an app called bump. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Does it still do that? Can you still get yeah. the iPhone to do that? Well, I don't think it's around anymore. I thought it was genius, but yeah. no. <laughs> too many times you got to send people. And we're dating ourselves, John. I know. You we're dating people, ourselves. <laughs> You have to send people your contact information when we could just bump our Palm Pilots and we had each other's information. So what's funny is after speaking to over 300 CEO groups and my people still trade business cards. Yeah. Like somehow that is, that is still a viable way of exchanging information. Yeah. You think that we would have evolved at this point, right? I know. But nope. It's still just about the business card. 
Well, that there's an opportunity for an app, right? We should, we need to bring the bump back where people can bump with each other. <laughs> <laughs> so now we can't touch other or touch each other's cards. So um, maybe it'll make a comeback. <laughs> uh, what if you, if you ask someone to bump, you think you might get a sexual harassment charge? Probably. There's probably a hashtag for that. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to bump no more. Now, I'm not going to search for that hashtag either. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, I, you already, you already said, shared that you're in Denver. I have listeners around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell people about where you live and what is it like? Hmm. So Denver is, um, we, they say we have more sunny days in California. So we have a ton of sun here, which is great. We have really hot days in the summer. That's cool. And beautifully. So it gets really not freezing, but it gets perfect in the evening. Like you're just like, if I could just snapshot this temperature and keep everything this temperature, life would be perfect. Um, but yeah, we have gorgeous falls. We have great summer. We got great spring and summer. It, yeah, we have, people think we're socked in like Minnesota on snow. We're not. So the plains is Denver and then it hits the Rocky Mountains and goes all the way up. The Rocky Mountains get the snow. We actually get a lot of protection from it because of that. And we don't get as much so as people think we do. So it's a wonderful place to live. Great place to raise children. Beautiful climate. And a very um, diverse, um, yeah. Well, every area has diversity, but I think this has a lot of really great difference, differences based on where you go in the in the um, you know in the state. It's, cool. so it's a great place to live. Yeah. So did did Denver have any of the uh, the large uh, protests that turned into riots, or was it? Pretty uh, um, yes, we did. We had a we had quite a number of protests that ended up in vandalizing the state capitol. Okay. I didn't, I didn't hear a lot about them on the news. Denver didn't make the news a lot, but yeah. Um, so I'm also a foodie. I love food and I'm from Texas. So you probably know that it's beef barbecue in Texas, primarily brisket barbecue. I love brisket. What's the food scene like in Denver? Scene is like super, I mean, we really kind of John Hickenlooper who is now running uh, for office. He was our governor for two years. He started the, sorry, two, two terms. He started the microbrewery craze in Colorado before microbrewery was really a thing. Um, and I think so the beer scene is massive here. Um, and also a very interesting, um, we have Hispanic community, so we have amazing Hispanic food. We've also, we're really known for that in Colorado. Um, and we just have this wonderful like pockets of really uh, ingenious restaurant owners that are doing some amazing things. Oh, wow. That sounds great. And yeah, so we, do, we frown upon chains here in Colorado. We don't love chains. Yeah. Um, and we like really supporting the independent restaurant owner. It's a, big, it's a big part of our community here. So Tex-Mex is a big part of the food scene in Texas. We, we love that. And mm-hmm. it's not traditional Mexican food. Right. Uh, when you say Hispanic food, you're talking about other than Mexican as well. You're talking about some South America, uh, the Caribbean. I mean, what, what's what's Hispanic right. food mean? Well, we bump up, you know, against, uh, you know, we always drive up to New Mexico and Santa Fe, which yes. is fairly close to us. So we just have a lot of authentic Mexican. Yeah. Um, you have to kind of hunt it down because there's like the generic restaurants and then there's the real restaurants. You have yeah. to you have to really understand what you're looking for or you'll just spend your money at, you know, you know, those, those kind of American Mexican restaurants yeah. and American Asian restaurants. Um, yeah. You have to kind of hunt them down. But when you find one, it's usually in a very obscure location and the food blows your mind. Yeah. So my husband and I like to, we like um, dives. Yeah. So we love to find dives and usually 
there's, you know, Carlos behind the counter and his mother's cooking back there in the kitchen. And it's all authentic to what their heritage has created. And they're sharing it with you. And so that's, that's my happy place as a die. That's cool. That's so cool. So in, in Texas, it's, it's, it's a little weird. Um, We do have traditional Mexican food here but it's different from the Tex-Mex and oh, I'm more of a Tex-Mex fan. I don't dislike the traditional Mexican food, but you can tell the difference. I'm guessing you can tell the difference there. Why you have to look for the dive to get the real authentic yep. true food that you're looking for. Right. So tell our listeners about your business. What, what's the, what's the mission of findability.com? Well, we empower business owners to get found online themselves by training your internal teams and as yeah that's cool and to be able to source that content from data and that it's an unprecedented time in marketing because all that data is is accessible to anyone who wants to see it um typically that information was held by agencies or by big you know surveys um places that did like um, survey groups and did, you know, focus groups and all that baloney. Um, now is an unprecedented time that anyone can have access to a very large set of data to make really educated decisions about how they create content and share it online. Um, and so we spend our time breaking it down, making it easy and making it implementable by their own internal. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I spent years at Yahoo training their million dollar advertisers. So advertisers had spent a million dollars a month on page search. And as part of that, you, you, you see that there's this very small group of people that actually understand. And then there's everyone else around it that are just kind of spinning with failed relationship after failed relationship, because there's no way for to hold them accountable for what they're doing. So for me with the university is empowering them that it's not this crazy snake oil SEO. There really is a formula and a method to be able to rank and anyone can do it as long as they're willing to. Yeah. Work. Yep. Yeah. So I think the, uh, the coolest thing that, that I heard you say in our, in the presentation that you gave was this, uh, and I think it was always there, but we just never talked about it. How most CEOs have no clue what language the people who do that marketing digital campaign language they had no clue what they're talking about. They just threw money at them and hoped it worked. Yep. Uh, are, are you, so what I hear you saying is that you help those CEOs really understand what they're paying for and what results well, they should get. Yeah. I mean, why don't we base our marketing strategy on what the business needs and not what the market people tell you to do. That's cool. That's right. Cool. So it's like, just because you have a bunch of nerds in your life, I married my nerd. Okay. It's a great strategy, but just because you have nerds in your life and they throw a bunch of acronyms at you and you feel like for the first time as an executive, you have no clue what they're talking about, which is an uncomfortable feeling for most executives. You, I think can't make as educated a decision because you just like, I wouldn't challenge my son who's a BMW mechanic. I wouldn't say, you know what? You may probably want to install that differently. Yeah. You know, like I don't have any context what they're doing. So I think that's why we don't trust mechanics, by the way, is because we have no context of what they're mm-hmm. doing. And I talk about that with my son all the time. Um, but for me, it's about creating context and understanding yeah. how to filter based on what the business is trying to achieve online. That's cool. That's the cool. That's the good stuff. Yeah. So I wasn't planning on going there, but so your, your son's a, a, a BMW mechanic. How did he, how did yeah. he pick that path? Um, he started working at Discount Tires. And loved it so much 
that, and he, he, my father, my husband and I are a super geek. Okay. So we're not like, you know, I'm going to break a nail. I'm not going to touch or do labor of any kind, except for maybe laundry. Okay. Yeah. And, um, he just loved, he loved working out. The, the people were amazing. When he graduated from high school, he knew he wasn't going to be a student and go to college. Yeah. College. Um, yeah. So he said, so we had some friends who um, had a, a relationship with the BMW dealership here in Denver. He apprenticed there for a year and now he's been working as a mechanic for six years and makes good money. I bet he does. <laughs> yeah, he makes good money doing that. Yeah. So the reason I ask is I did a podcast recently about uh, the uh, the death of so many universities because they've gone away from skill-based education. To, oh, yeah. Uh, to for, and you end up with people going to these universities, getting a four-year degree, but have no skill. Exactly. And, you know, the, the whole point is that, that in the future, especially during the roaring 20s that we're about to enter, it's all going to be about skills. What skills do you have when you get out of school? And I, I don't, yeah. I'm not implying that you can't get skills in college. Mm -hmm. Some people come out of college with skills, nurses, accountants, teachers, engineers. But for many, they're picking degree plans that offer no skills and they're borrowing $100,000 or $200,000 mm -hmm. to get a degree without a skill and there's no place for them. Mm. Yes. So it's fascinating to me. Uh, I'm a fan of Mike Rowe and his ideas about going to work and what education will be like. I love dirty jobs. Yeah. So, so that's cool. That's cool. I, so I think my youngest son, yeah, my youngest son is going to be uh, following that path. So oh, good. Yeah, it's so, great, so, great, great job path. Final thoughts. What is yeah. one piece of advice, a takeaway for our listeners? Listen to your children. When, don't push what you think they should do. What success looks like to you is not necessarily what success looks like to your children. And I can't tell you how many people that I've seen push their children on a path that they think is right for them, only for them to leave with a massive amount of debt and do something completely different. So my husband. I love that. I love that. I, we had, even though we're both educated, we thought that's what they wanted. We had to sit back and say, no, my son is crazy about plants. He's going to work at a nursery and no, my son does not like formal education. He likes hands-on education. He's going to be a mechanic. And that has nothing to do with what good parents we are. It's about making sure that we align their life path with what makes them happy. That's beautiful. And what I tell people is once they get that skill, they can go back and get those other things later. They can go right. get a business. When they're ready. When they're ready. And when they know what they want. That's right. So last thing, and I'm going to let you go. Okay. Um, how can people find you? We've got listeners around the world. How can they find Heather <laughs> Lutze? Well, I'm the findability gal. Yeah. So how do they find <laughs> So if you're findability, um, I'm findability.com or just findability. You'll find me right off in Google and we can continue our relationship online. Findability.com or just Google findability and they will find you. Are you sure That's they'll right. find you? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Heather, thanks for being our guest. You were awesome. Uh, I love your sense of humor. I love your energy. Um, I hope you'll come back and do a phase two sometime. When anytime, we can, anytime, we can John. Get, get deep into this, but I appreciate <laughs> you being on the show. People, this is a podcast for crazy people. We do things that other people are afraid of. We're crazy enough to go big. We're crazy enough to try things. We're just crazy enough to get things done. Until next time. <laughs>